Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a fourth-generation female church musician and has been a professional singer and music educator for over 25 years. Talia Maria Sheehan has performed with Capella Romana, the Grammy-nominated St. Ticon Choir, the Grammy-nominated Petram Institute Singers, and Artifact Ensemble. She's the director of the music program at St. Ticon's Orthodox Theological Seminary, a year-long intensive music leadership residency for church musicians. She also teaches voice, music theory, and liturgical music, and directs a children's choir and a women's choir. Along with her husband, composer and conductor Benedict Sheehan, Talia is the co-founder of Artifact Institute, a collective of culture creators who work to build living contexts for the arts and community. She and her husband live with their seven daughters in South Canaan, Pennsylvania, Please welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Talia Sheehan. Welcome, Talia. Such a blessing to have you with us tonight. Hello, Father. Hello, Peter. Hi, everybody. It's nice to meet you. Well, I'm very glad to see some of you. I know there's a uh, there are scores of you that I cannot see, but I am thinking about you as I speak. I am really glad to speak today at a time when our culture is really quite at a high degree of unrest. And, and there's a lot of questions in people's minds and hearts about how we can possibly continue to be together as a nation. And I really am very, very glad to speak to you today about this topic, because as far as I'm concerned, and quite frankly, this topic is probably my favorite topic. I like to talk about a lot of topics, but this one is my favorite. I believe truly that music making and singing in particular is probably the one of the most powerful tools that we have, especially as Christians, to unite to our brothers and sisters. So I'm very honored to be able to speak to you this evening about the art that brings unity. Um, so I, I'm a musician generally, I'm a pianist, I'm a conductor, um, but I am particularly a vocalist. And vocalizing is very, it's kind of a strange thing. Some people identify as vocalists. Some people do not identify as vocalists. But part of the problem is the mystery. What, what even is this thing? So 
I'd like to start us off this evening trying to answer the question of what is the voice? And we're going to play a little game called Get to Know Your Glottis. So everybody at home, all of you watching, listening, I would like you to do, we're going to do three little activities to help get to know your glottis. And the first one is swallowing. So just everybody swallow. Fabulous. Congratulations. This is a very, very important skill. So the first role of the two tiny, tiny, tiny little flaps of skin that are our glottis attached to which are our vocal cords is to close our airway while, while we swallow to prevent aspirating food or drink or spit. It's all kind of gross. So I just, I just apologize. I'll put it out there. I apologize. So that's a really, really important biological function to swallow. Now we'll do the next one. And uh, this one is hold your breath. So I wanted to, want you all to take a real big breath in and close your throat so that you can hold your breath kind of like you were gonna, like you were gonna lift something heavy. So let's do it together. Ready? And <sighs> that feels nice. <laughs> so the second purpose of your glottis, these tiny, tiny little flaps of skin is to create the pressure canister, to close the pressure canister that is our insides. And as infants develop in the womb, one of the first things they actually develop is the opening that will be the esophagus and the trachea and the opening at the bottom of the elimination system. So it's not to be, I'll speak euphemistically so it's not to be too graphic, but this is a pressure canister. And this is used for uh, we, we have to have control of this pressure canister for birthing and for elimination. And we sometimes use it, not to great effect, but we sometimes use it in physical exertion, muscle, muscle, muscle exertion. Okay, so that's the other purpose, to create our pressure canister. Now the third one, and we're going to do this gently because I don't want you to wang on your little vocal folds there, is to cough, to clear your airway. So everybody just give a little cough, a little polite cough. <laughs> So obviously to clear our airway from obstruction, that's the third like really great use of this little, little spot in our, in our physiology. But we have a problem. Our larynxes and our glottis, they're lower than they should be. And humans are the only mammals who can't breathe and swallow at the same time. We are the only ones who can choke on our food. I was like, uh, okay, so why? That seems like a terrible design. Because the voice is a glory. It's a showpiece, like the train of a peacock. It's a survival liability, but a source of beauty. So we, unique among all mammals, developed vocalization because we love it. Vocalization came first, words came after. So first were pitches and vowels, and then we spoke words. And I think this is a really profound way in which we have the Virgin Mary as our model. We are each willing vessels through which the word becomes incarnate. It's a really fabulous thing about our voices. It's a wonderful mistake that is glorious. So, okay, so why do we sing in worship? Let's start with why we sing in groups first. 
um, it's important to remember, and this is an uncomfortable truth, I think, it's important to remember what every totalitarian regime knows very well, that moving and singing as a group creates powerful group bonds. So an army marching, you know, um, if you've seen any of the um, political rallies in North Korea, videos of political rallies in North Korea, they are elaborate orchestrated choral movement as a way to actually build cultural cohesion. And this is done very strategically. So that's kind of like one of the darker ways that it's manifested, but a, a beautiful way is a social dance or a folk dance that somehow kind of uh, contains an, the identity of, of a people, these national dances or, or, or regional dances. Singing a national anthem. This is still very much something that we have in our culture. In moments when we are gathered as a nation, we sing the national anthem, our national anthem together. Other nations do as well. The Olympics is a fabulous example of all of the different anthems that represent all of these different groups that are bonded. Or the experience of singing along at a rock concert or you know, some sort of giant musical uh, event where tens of thousands of people sometimes you're singing along to this one song and lots of people find those very transcendent experiences. So it really makes a bond, a powerful bond to sing together. Now, there's another interesting uh, phenomenon that happens when people sing together and it's a kind of synchronization. So, um, there was a fabulous, fascinating study. I don't know why they're always done in Scandinavia, but done in Scandinavia, where a, a choir was, um, uh, all the members of a choir were attached to EKGs. And as they sang through their piece, the, uh, all of their heartbeats actually aligned. And their heartbeats not only aligned, but they aligned with the tempo of the music. So there's a physiological way in which we are actually uniting our bodies when we're singing with other people. And really fascinating thing about um, how choirs work in particularly is that if you think about you know, the quality of one person's voice, they could sing one note, imagine one person singing one note, and then imagine another person joining that person singing one note. They're both singing the same note, but their unique voices have not been, they've not been depersonalized. They've not been consumed into some sort of, you know, uh, a uh, impersonal unity. Their voices remain unique, but they contribute powerfully to the unity of the sound. And there's a lot of really, really uh, profound theology in that. Um, and then the last is trust. It's fascinating how much uh, trust is built when people make music together. There are little ways to show that if I do this, then you'll do that. And then we, we, uh, we see each other's responses and begin to build a relationship of trust. And um, that, that uh, another fascinating study of um, infants that were uh, attached to um, adults. And uh, one group was, um, they played music, and one group was told to bounce out of tempo with the music, with the infant in the carrier. And another group was told to bounce in tempo with the music. And then after that activity, they put the infants and the adults in a situation where the infant uh, was able to reach something that the adult was looking like they were trying to reach. 
So a way that these were these were social socially aware enough infants, they were in you know, over a year they could they could interact and and move about enough that they knew that they could hand this thing that the adult wanted to them. So adult is reaching, infant can reach it. And if the adult was one of the adults that bounced in tempo while the child was strapped to them, then that child handed the thing to the adult. If they bounced out of tempo with the child, the children refused to hand the thing to the adult. The degree of trust that is created when we move together in music is profound, so profound, it's not rational. Super duper duper important. So it's really interesting that the church has maintained that to truly worship, as in corporate communal praise and sacrifice, we must sing. And one of the things we know is that the angels sing ceaselessly before the throne of God. We don't know much else, but we know they sing ceaselessly before the throne of God. And we know that they join us in our worship in the liturgy. So we know there's a heavenly archetype that we are intended to strive to be united with. So interestingly, as is so often true of God's commandments, it's not an arbitrary order. And the obeying this particular commandment, and it's a gentle commandment, obeying this particular commandment serves to actually heal us. And not just by our, our obedience for the sake of obedience. It is actually Singing is actually physically, mentally, and socially healing. We'll talk about more of that later. And then the last really interesting thing about why we should sing in worship is because the process of learning an art is a lot like the process of sanctification. It's an infinite goal whose intermediate developmental milestones are rewards in themselves. So, one has the capacity to teach us about the other. By learning the art of singing, we can learn what it's like to try to repent, to move forward in the process of sanctification. And God in his mercy gives us incremental goals, incremental rewards for our achievement in that so that each little moment in the process is joyful. So why should we sing in worship? I mean, I think we should sing everywhere, but we're particularly talking here about why we should sing in worship. And this is a this is a this is a problem right now because it's it's challenging and it's expensive and it's you have to do it over and over and over again. So there's all these reasons why singing in worship is quite inconvenient. Um, and, and and frankly, you can see why people maybe have made choices about worship music that 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 make it more convenient. So I would like to start with a gospel we all know so well, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I have another little activity for us. This is a mental activity. I would just like you all to think for a moment about some of the kinds of charitable works that you and your community do to try to routinely to try to be faithful Christians. Some of the works of charity. Just think about them. Think about the last time you did one. Or think about the people who are so faithful and do it so routinely. So it's interesting. There's a lot of scholarly observations about what early Christians did that compelled so much conversion. One of those in a text called The Rise of Christianity written by Rodney Stark the author says, Christians revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless, impoverished, and strangers, Christians offered immediate basis for attachments. Christians, to cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christians offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemic, fires, and earthquakes, Christians offered effective nursing services. Thus, the early Christians ministered as a transformative movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the Roman Empire. But we live in a very unusual time in terms of the human experience. For millennia, we were hungry, and we were naked, and we were oppressed or imprisoned. But for most modern societies, those are no longer our major obstacles. Materially, we're extremely wealthy. Even some of the poorest of us in America are incomprehensibly more privileged than any other humans at any other time in all of human history. Things we take for granted, clean water, sanitation, climate control, medical care, preventative medical care, a steady, I dare say even indulgent food supply, agricultural or manufacturing machinery, comfortable, fast transportation, even window glass would all be incomprehensible luxuries to humans from any other era. So these historical problems of humanity aren't our problems. So what are our problems? And I'll say here that these problems were huge before our past few years of global pan pandemic. Depression. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the global burden of disease. Isolation. 
social isolation is a huge risk factor for the onset of major depression, which has more than doubled in prevalence over the past decade. And there's growing evidence that isolation increases vulnerability to various forms of addiction as well. Addiction. Approximately 10 million adults have co-occurring mental health and addiction disorders in America. Stress. The degree to which our environment leaves us in a high stress state is difficult to fully comprehend. Everything from artificial light levels to practical anxieties, to social media pressures, to political unrest, to sleeplessness, takes a physical toll on our minds and bodies. And the catalog of the negative effects that regular high-level production of stress hormones has on our bodies is frankly astonishing and way too long to list here. And finally, purposelessness. Power, pleasure, and pride, into which categories fall most sins, are the default assumed motivators in our modern society. They're the driving forces behind all commercial advertising. They're the assumed determinants of all political and economic movements. But they're fundamentally unsatisfying. And it's also generally agreed that they don't provide sufficient meaning for enduring the misery of life. We Christians haven't caught up with the fact that the most common problems that people have are radically different from those of even just 100 years ago. And I'll say this from personal experience. My father and his many generations, family before him, were from the Bahamas. And while the Bahamas is a beautiful place to spend a vacation, it's a very, very difficult place to live, especially if you live on some of the out islands. My father, who was born in 1933, slept outside for much of his childhood. So this change is even in just my generation and my family. And that's a really big change to come up to speed with. Really big. But it's time. And finally, and I think this is really important to remember, we see Christian communities falling into the same afflictions that individuals fall into. Isolation. Mistrust of anyone not part of the community. Depression. A lack of motivation to do anything demanding. Purposelessness. An inability to articulate why they exist as a community. Stress. Communities are operating in survival mode so much of the time that they don't have time to refine their vision or mission. And addiction, being dependent on artificial stimulation to provide motivation. Nostalgia and anxiety about moral contamination are absolutely addictive. But we're stuck because this ministering to the needy is how Christ says we will be judged. So what are we to do? Sing together. And here is the crux of my argument. Singing in worship, in education, and in socializing is the most immediate and effective tool that the church has at her disposal to heal the actual afflictions of the modern person, both young and old, and to demonstrate the true universality of the church. 
And here's just some of the reasons why and how that is true. Music is an inclusive art where the listener is as essential to the work as the musicians. If there were no listeners, the music would have far less purpose in the moment. Music making can be an instantaneous feedback loop for positive behaviors and techniques. Music triggers the brain to release dopamine, the feel-good chemical that opiates, alcohol, nicotine, amphetamines, and cocaine stimulate the brain to produce. In fact, scientific studies have shown that in subjects that listen to music that they paid to be able to hear, far more dopamine was released than with music that they had consumed free of charge. Imagine how much dopamine would be released if you worked hard to produce the music yourself. Singing stimulates parts of the brain responsible for memory, making the singer far better able to remember the words sung than if they were merely read. Music making creates a bond between performers that increases both trust and sympathy. Singers' heartbeats physically align as they breathe and sing together. Music, this is an interesting one, is the most accurate representation of the values of a community in real time. You can build a church, decorate a church, paint frescoes, etc., furnish it, but those don't require re-articulation every time the church gathers to worship. Music does. So you need to spend for it every time, which shows what that community cares about. Music making at a profoundly high level is attainable to relatively young children and can act as a practical expression of the value placed on children in the church. It's important to remember that most of the, the canon of Western choral music, especially Western sacred choral music, was performed, written for and performed by choirs of men and boys. And these boys were in the age range of maybe seven to 11 or 12. They were um, pre-voice change um, boys. And so obviously there is nothing about the child voice that makes it not capable of handling very, very profound demands. Musical beauty is perceptible by youth as much as by adults and can serve to particularly inspire and support adolescents who are struggling with existential crises when rational argument cannot. Music making and the extremely challenging work of studying and refining it are ways that youth can fully participate in demanding and meaningful work in the church. This meaningful contribution is crucial to a feeling of belonging in a church community and thus a claiming of a faith tradition is their own. But the means and purpose for this are the content of an entirely different lecture. Music precisely because it has, it is the least concrete or directly representative art. You can't say that this piece of music means this or this sound means this. Is a ready entree into the transcendent and can communicate many things about who God is and who we all are at once. These are realities that can't be expressed merely verbally. Therefore, it can be the most meaningful for the most different people at the same time. Musical ensemble structures are a model for positive hierarchy, where the individual musician is unique and irreplaceable, and the leader 
must exercise authority with compassion and strength, not creating the beauty for himself, but enabling all those participating to create beauty together. And we could use some models for positive hierarchy in our world today. Musical repertoire is a unique expression of a community's aesthetic tastes and cultural origin, giving them a deep sense of communal, communal identity. Music softens hard words and strengthens gentle ones. Music making and choral singing in particular is team building par excellence. Because when you have a choral group singing towards the same ideal, everyone can tell when something's not right. And you all know, those of you who have sung in choirs, everybody knows when they're off. Everybody knows when the person next to them is off. We tend to kind of just try and ignore it so we can get through, but the kind of rewards that come from a group effort to improve the ensemble sound are unparalleled in team building. There just is no other thing that can act like a choir and the process of becoming a better choir. See, God knows all this. That's why he's like, you know what? You're going to sing together. You're going to come to church. You're going to think about me. You're going to sacrifice some things, some time, some money, some beautiful furnishings, some paint, some stone, and you're going to sing. You're going to sing to me. That's what he wants. Uh, last but not least, music making offers a never-ending expressive and technical challenge. And that's that's why I, I you know, likened it to the process of sanctification. There is no... There is no goal. There is just, as Aslan says, further up and further in. And every moment that you achieve the next step, there is, well, we could talk about it biologically. There is a big hit of dopamine waiting for you. And that's the motivation to take the next step. So it's not a so long, uh, you know, delayed reward process. It's right now. The reward can be right now. And if that is evidence, isn't evidence of God's mercy and love for us, but I don't know what is. I thank him every day that this is what we're supposed to do when we get together and worship him. So, I mean, this is kind of overwhelming. If this is all true, then why don't we sing very much anymore? Like what's going on? Well, one of the reasons, and this is an important thing to be honest about, is because we're all so rich that we don't have to make the music ourselves anymore. Rich humans throughout history have always had other people make music for them. That's just, just how it worked. But the people who couldn't afford to hire someone else to make the music for them, they made the music themselves. Now we are all so rich that none of us has to make, make the music anymore. And on top of that, and let's be clear about how lucky we, lucky we are to be alive right now. You know, forget the window glass, polio vaccine, clean water, and indulgent food supply. We are so lucky because literally every recording ever made is immediately available to us. Music production and technical proficiency are like through the roof. And really, frankly, maybe only even the last 75 to 80 years 
It's just skyrocketed. And you can prove that to yourself by going and listening to any recording of a choir from before about 1960 or maybe 1950. You'll just be like, wow, okay. That's not particularly in tune or pleasant. There were some shining examples, but quite frankly, the technical quality of music generally, of live performances, your average community choir right now is about as good as some of the best choirs in the world were about 100 years ago. And this is just, we're just that lucky. Partly, this is thanks to the quality of music education, although it, admittedly, it has lost its universality, but it was universal. And because it was universal, we now have a skyrocketing technical proficiency level in our culture and across the world, frankly. And music education is really quite universally available um, comparatively. And the technology we can use to make music is more powerful than any humans have ever enjoyed and radically cheaper than it has ever been. Only the most wealthy people could afford instruments. And, you know, we're not very well off and we have a gorgeous baby grand piano in our living room, our very small living room. It takes up most of the living room, but it's delightful and it's a member of the family and so it takes up real estate. And I know it's hard to think, but here we all are enjoying free time that we spend at our, at our, uh, um, uh, you know, at our discretion, but we also have more free time to enjoy that music than any other humans who have ever lived. So, oh my gosh, that's like, what that means is that we can consume any music at any time that is more technically flawless than any music ever was historically at a radically high level, a quality of reproduction, as loud as we want, and that's a thing, that is a thing, as loud as we want, and as many times as we want. We have an embarrassment of riches, but that also means that our standards are outrageously high. Outrageously high. So um, I would like to have another little activity. So I, would love I can I can see a few of you here I can see maybe maybe about maybe about 25 30 of you I would love to pick someone at random from the group to unmute their microphone and sing the first few lines of any hymn or chant for us all it can be anything just just make sure you're loud enough that everyone can hear you but of course not too loud because you might max out your microphone and cause feedback so uh let's see I would like to pick no one. Sorry, I was a little bit mean. <laughs> but do you all feel your elevated heart rate? Do you feel the slight shakiness of your nerves? Do you feel the churn in your stomach and the ache in your sternum? That is the primary reason for why we don't sing very much anymore. <laughs> it was terribly mean of me, I apologize. You were all very good sports. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to offer you all the relief. It's really quite a terrifying prospect. And I perform a lot and nerves are an ever-present thing. But speaking as a voice coach, people are often deeply, deeply, existentially terrified of singing. I had a voice student who was a combat veteran who came to... Uh, the seminary um, to pursue ordination. And I was his coach for a while. 
And he said to me, in no uncertain terms, on several occasions, I would rather be shot at than sing in front of people. And he was not exaggerating. He was not exaggerating. And that's just one of, you know, the, the, the strong, tough, you know, these poor, these poor, um, these poor men who are, who are uh, in priestly formation. When, when I explained to them that like 80%, 85%, maybe 90% of their professional duties is going to be actually singing in public and that people are going to judge, you know, whether they admit it or not, a little bit of the quality of the God they're proclaiming by the quality of their singing voice, the blanching that happens is, is, is significant. It's okay, it's okay, I'll help you, it's okay. <laughs> but that's what you have to say to people. You have to say, it's okay, I'll help you. Because people are terrified of either the bravery and vulnerability that's needed to produce sounds and risk personal rejection for being bad. Because you're not hiding behind a trombone or a piano or you know, a synthesizer or a production console, you're not hiding behind any of those things. You can blame those things when stuff goes wrong. It's just you. It's just you and how you're made. And that's it. So if you get rejected because of your voice, that's you being rejected. So they're either terrified of that, reasonably so, or of the sheer power of the emotions that arise when one sings strongly. And often it's a deeply entangled, simultaneous grief and elation. And that's real joy. And it's often totally overwhelming. So people are afraid, you know, kind of a good reason, but they're afraid. So singing in worship is basically incremental exposure therapy to the terror of rejection of our physical person in a safe space where others are experiencing that as well. And to the kind of emotions, kinds of emotions that are often too intense to be safely experienced as an individual. If we were overcome by that real joy, the entangled grief and elation, it it would probably frighten us. But we can do it in worship because it's safe. So this is a really important principle. And this is content from a, a church music education lecture that I give. You have to remember that fear is first. Fear is the fundamental psychological state, but it's only by careful exposure to the world from within what's called our zone of proximal development, which is this incremental process of pushing the boundaries of our endurance and our understanding to the next developmental milestone. We'll call it the ZPD because it's a fun acronym. So, We must be trained into courage by a wise teacher. And this is the process that best sums up the responsibility of a parent from birth, supporting a child as they attempt the next developmental milestone while keeping them reasonably safe. And not until we're shown or experience a thing as being safe do we switch from neurological prey state to one characterized by confidence. And pushing students beyond their ZPD causes fear. And let's replace students with worshipers or people generally, because it works for everybody, maybe even more for adults. Kids have a kind of bravery. Fear causes shame. Shame causes anger. And anger 
causes outbursts and disruption or detachment. And this is one big and often overlooked side of any group dynamic. The other side is, of course, the frustration at having your ZPD undervalued, creating in a person the fear that their agency and ability are imaginary. Either way is a surefire recipe for poor rapport between people in a group, especially between leaders and their followers. So another reason that people are afraid is because of ineffective and untrained leadership. Generals have combat experience. It would be supremely irresponsible to put a person with no experience of crisis at the head of an army. And good teachers are like good generals. Wisdom and skill seasoned with long experience of crisis. So who is a teacher in a non-classroom community music-making endeavor? Whoever has the authority, a pastor, a music director, a cantor, a parent, a teacher, the loudest voice in the choir, and someone always has the authority. Even uh, horizontal structures, group structures in music making actually kind of devolve into hierarchical structures. There's just always has to be a leader, even if it's organically chosen and non-verbally chosen. But the fact that there is always someone in authority, that's a topic for another talk. So we've all experienced bad leadership at least once. A leader encourages a musical activity that we feel is inappropriate somehow. Now, maybe that's your grandmother sitting in the living room saying, come on, play the piano for me. And you're horrified and, you know, you're, no, you know you're going to embarrass yourself and you're just like, nope, absolutely not. But so perhaps it's that this leader is infantilizing the participants. Perhaps the leader is overly emotive and lacks reverence, like it's, you know, this strong personal private feelings that are on display. Perhaps they're trying too hard to be cool and they embarrass themselves. Perhaps the musical event went on too long and people are getting bored and uncomfortable and this leader doesn't notice. Perhaps you're ne too nervous to perform well, but they don't notice or help you and you choke and it's bad and you're ashamed. And then of course there was the all too common and personally infuriating, just mouth the words since you can't sing it right. Many people that I love very, very dearly were told by someone to just mouth the words because they couldn't do it right and carried that grief, and I am not exaggerating, to their graves. It's really powerful. It's a really, really, really big power, power, big power that people have. Don't underestimate the trauma that this can cause. So all these things can put us back into a psychological state of fear. And we will avoid fear at any expense, including not coming back to worship. There are a few insights from cognitive psychology that are helpful to have in mind when we consider how complicated this problem of fear is first really is. And one of them is called a stereotype threat. So when people think, and this has to do with academic performance as much as it has to do with musical performance, when people think that the type of person that they are is generally bad at something, like singing or taking the SAT, they will significantly underperform. And eliminating the underperformance gap requires, requires really 
dealing with the stereotype threat therapeutically. And it is nothing short of a strategic, wise encouragement. That's what it is. And then rational versus embodied cognition. So what's that? Whoa. We think really differently rationally than we do physically. And consider the difference between reading a book about driving a car and then actually getting behind the wheel and driving a car. Those are two totally different ways to learn this. And that's the same thing about music. There are people that can know a lot about singing or a lot about music, but have very little experience with it or, or be good at it technically or emotionally. And then this is another one. Faces map right onto our brain stem. We don't actually see faces. We feel faces. We see facial expressions with our body. So an uncomfortable face or a disapproving face of a fellow musician or a director will cause a sub-rational response that will trigger the fight or flight well before there's any rationalization that can intervene. So, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. So what can we do? What can a church community do? There's so many things you can do. If you have the authority, create contexts for music. Make singing a vibrant, self-sustaining, and central part of communal life, both in worship and outside of worship. Take times when people's attention are already focused on a shared ideal and add singing to it. That will provide a place for people to sing. Make a financial investment in music, not only to improve overall quality of music making in the church, but also to allow the community as a whole to express its values and reap the benefits more deeply. Because remember, you get more dopamine if you pay for it. Yay! Hire a professional music leader who is tra trained music educator to implement, implement strategic plan to improve or expand music making and worship. Work to engage with a musical community in the region at large, outside of your church or jurisdiction, because music creates bonds. Encourage church singers to participate in music making in other contexts so as to hear the sounds of other communities and understand their neighbors more, like a community choir. And do this because you love beauty and because you love the way singing together makes your lives more beautiful. Not because you're trying to convert people, because it usually doesn't work anyhow. Singers, including the music leader at a church, should sing with more skilled singers than themselves as often as possible. Musical improvement is an upward spiral of reward and incentive. Churches should share their musical beauty with other communities, collaborate, join local festivals or concert series. Church, a church can provide musical education for the community at large, especially children. And also, again, to be clear, this is not proselytizing or conversion hunting. Do not press people to come become members. Merely give them a music education. Share your wealth with them. Churches can encourage live, non-sacred music making in social events or gatherings. Appoint a talented parishioner to provide background music or lead background music at a picnic or dinner or a luncheon. And practice incrementalism. Make one immediate thing better. It's the artistic equivalent to cleaning your room. Then work to maintain that thing while you look to make one more thing better. And it can be anything, as long as it's actually valuable to you and your community. Guess and check, try a thing, ask around. Do people like it? Great, if not, tweak it, try it again. What can a family do? So that was the church community, what can a family do? Connect some kind of music making to important events in the family. Prayers before meal, holidays, 
even please, please, Lord, just learn how to sing happy birthday better so that it's not painful because even little kids can tell when it's bad. This is super powerful and you can try and maintain it and enrich it. And don't forget, you know, the, the get feedback and tweak what you can to make it better. Have a family read aloud or song evening or campfire around a fireplace or have people sitting around drawing and singing and playing music quietly or doing crosswords. This is a favorite for my family. And encourage people to learn a new song to play for the next evening. But don't clap. Give warm compliments and make sure it's contributing positively to the energy of the gathering, but don't draw too much attention to the individual musician. It will normalize music making in that context. And learn to dance. It's essential to coordinate gross motor function before you can coordinate small motor function like singing or an instrument playing. You literally have to know how to move your whole body in rhythm to music before you can move these tiny, tiny little muscles in rhythm to music. And even just mom and dad, they'll be modeling it for your kids and they'll love it. And even if they don't even do it themselves, go to a live choral concert and then talk about it. What did you like or dislike? Why? And something I've done in my family is a jukebox car ride. So everybody takes turns and I say, okay, what do you want to listen to? And the five-year-old says, I want to listen to this song. And then the seven-year-old says, I want to listen to this song. Everybody gets one song and nobody's allowed to criticize the selection. And we just go around and around. And boy, I'll tell you, I have learned more about my children, about my family members, and about new music that I had no idea about just because those jukebox car rides on the way to school. Oh, it's wonderful. And what can an individual do? And it's a little trickier. It's a little trickier on the individual level. You have to respect the power that singing or any music making can have over others. You have to be part of a group somehow. And here, the Christian ethos can really be applied. Be humble and love your neighbor. And like the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. Be sensitive when you join music making or share music making. Because our standards are so high, music making makes people vulnerable, and we're out of practice as a culture, people feel unsafe around live music these days. You have to remember, fear is first. They have to be sure they're not gonna be embarrassed themselves or be embarrassed for you. So a little humility goes a long way in sharing your music with others. Music is like food. You can't force it on people, but you can leave it out gently for people to enjoy or invite them out for dinner with you, as it were. Don't Don't use music as a weapon. Don't hold an audience captive with your music. Have a favorite hymn or a favorite song. And don't pretend or be embarrassed about it, people can tell. Be honest about your musical tastes, but remember their tastes and don't dogmatize them. We can't dogmatize taste because music is not representative. It doesn't mean something. And this goes for worship music as much as it does for recreational music. That's why there's so many different styles of worship music and why the church has been so reluctant to dogmatize worship music styles. Find a context that already exists and plug into it. Don't waste energy and time reinventing the wheel by yourself. Find a good teacher and learn from them. Find a band and join it. Find a church choir and join it. Find a community choir and join it. Go to see an opera or a musical or professional choir. Find a family member who loves music and begin to work with them. 
We must faithfully and humbly do one good work at a time. And like the process of sanctification, our works will create fruit that will be sweet to us and to our families and our communities that we can share in love. And by this love, people will know that we are his disciples. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Talia. What a fun evening talking about music. You, it, uh, I'm, it went very quickly. All righty. We've got some questions. So are you ready, Talia? We'll jump right in. Let's do it. Wonderful. Uh, Bridget writes in asking, is, is there much weight to how certain types of music affect our worship culture or personal experience? For example, a traditional chant versus modern uh, worship or you know, like church worship with pianos and such? That's an interesting question. From our perspective here at St. Tecons, we're dealing with the um, a tradition that has been relatively unbroken for many hundreds of years liturgically, but an artistic tradition that underwent a radical change. Um, uh, the St. Tecons is... is heritage is Russian, though very few of the people um, who reside here, work here, or are monastics here are ethnically Russian. Um, and uh, that process, there, there's a lot of hurt around that transition. The, 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 it was a style change that was actually mandated. Um, and um, what we, we, the kind of processing that people have had to do about that, um, because it's obviously very considered um, idiomatic. This is, if you know, you say Russian Orthodox, then you think, oh, Rachmaninoff and lots of choirs with lots of deep basses and things like that. I mean, quite, quite literally. Um, uh, but that was, um, it, it was, it was hard won for that to become the, the identity of the group. Um, and, and I think that that's basically what it, sort of what it comes down to. You can't, you can't artificially reproduce historical um historical practice musically we just can't there's it's it's kind of an intellectual pursuit but we just don't know what the music sounded like in the early church we just we literally don't know we do not know all we know is what we're doing now what people who are still alive could remember recordings are a new thing so there's so much variety in worship music styles across christianity that if anything and this is the this is the um, perspective that my husband and I take. If anything, you just have to look to your brethren, your brothers and sisters, for what is right. If the worship music doesn't sound like worship to the people worshiping there, then there's a problem. But if the worship music does sound like worship to the people worshiping there, then it's okay. And no amount of superimposition of some other style or taste onto the practice of an existing community is going to make that community more who they are. It's not going to make them better Christians to do somebody else's thing. Unless they do it voluntarily, unless they say, this is what we want, but it really does have to be a negotiation. That is complicated. It's really complicated to have that conversation. Effectively, legislating, let's put it this way, legislating music in worship is a recipe for disaster. Legislating it. So, so for people who have no connection with a community to say that you should be singing this way. As an educator, what I do is I just try to help people do what they're doing better. And then often, once they do what they're doing better, they want to fix what they're doing to make it even more 
perform better. And very often those those directions, they they sort of, um, you know, they, the, the path sort of let, unfolds itself in, in front of people. But you have to start with doing what you are currently doing better. It sounds like the, the, the mechanism that you're describing is, is that of tradition and organic development, right, in, in, in a particular community. Yeah, beautifully yeah. put. Uh, Catherine writes in asking, uh, is there anything about music that could be objectively impure or evil? How could it affect us? Uh, if so, how could that affect us and how can we avoid or deal with it? We are living in a spiritual battle after all. Talia, go ahead. Sure. Um, this is just a really interesting question, right? Because I think it's that dogmatizing taste thing again. We really can only say that mm, a kind of music sounds evil to us. And I don't mean that as solipsism. I just mean that the there is no direct representation. Music has no immediate direct representation. It does not mean something. There are associations that people have with certain kinds of musical events. So maybe the reason why something feels impure or evil to a person is because they have an association with a sound, with an event in their experience. And that's a personal, that's a personal spiritual journey. That's a personal spiritual struggle. So the question has to be turned around. Not why are you doing that music, but why do I have this fear about those sounds? And Again, this is something that really only works in relationship. You have to be in relationship with a spiritual guide. You have to be in relationship with people who love you. You ideally should be in a relationship with a loving community where you can actually say, I have an association with these sounds that is very negative. Maybe you can learn how to, how to reframe that association if there's no way around those sounds happening during worship for you. But to one-to-one -one associate a musical sound with evil is is too specific to our own personal experiences to be called something universal. If I could just maybe, I don't know if this is pushing back, but just maybe to put a finer point on it. So is it is it possible to fully disassociate um, music from a lot of the that context to it? Like, so maybe you relate, you know, a particular style, like a heavy metal or something to particular actions that people take. Is it possible yeah. to fully disassociate that and just view it, you know, abstractly? <laughs> I wouldn't want to. <laughs> and that's why I feel like worship music has to sound like churches, church to the people where the worship is happening. Now, now what are the ideals? Because we worship, we worship, um, we worship a person. Christ is a person. And so it's not, we worship, you know, a generic non-specific identity. So the, the ideal that we're holding up, well, I, I you know, we would love for the, the musical ideal, the, 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 um, the energies that we experience in, when we hear a music to lead us, to associate, to, to, to remind us, we think in, in analogy, that's how our cognition works, to make us think of Christ. That would, be, that would be good. But I'm not sure that I couldn't say that there are people for whom heavy metal, because of other associations they have had that were very negative, that, how can I say that that doesn't make them think of Christ? I don't know. It's about the worship community you're in. So this is not, this is corporate worship as opposed to a personal prayer. And I would like to really clearly distinguish that corporate worship requires a huge amount of negotiation and a huge amount of openness to, again, tradition. Sometimes it's just like, man, this is what we got. This is not great, but let's see if we can do it a little bit better. 
Because if you cut yourself off from the tree, then you're not connected to life anymore. But you also have to not just decide not to grow and decide not to, you know, uh, not to spread out new shoots into, into the air around you. Um, so that I, I always bring it back to have a conversation with the people who are making the decisions about, about the music. Maybe the, the conversation is like the conversation with your 15 year old kid who's making decisions about what music is going to be audible in the house where you have to honestly say like, this music makes me really uncomfortable. And I, I just want you to understand that. And I would love it if it's possible to take a break from it right now. I'm feeling really strong. And then you negotiate it. But it's the same thing in a community. You're always in relationship about music. Music is very, very difficult to experience as an individual. Always in relationship. Uh, Adrian writes in asking, how do you prioritize learning music and teaching music to your kids when you have little or no music background yourself? Or say if you have a child who's reluctant to even listen to music. Oh, that's such an interesting uh, scenario. Well, um, you know, I've, I'm a music educator. My husband's a music educator. We're performers. But we send our kids to music lessons. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, there is, there is nothing so valuable as a child going out of the home, out of the matrix of the family, and hearing from another adult that they respect the same things they were hearing at home. It's so helpful. It's, oh, I wasn't doing that right. Oh, I should practice. Oh, this, is, this sounds nice when I do it well. Oh, okay. It's really good. Just send the kids out to some sort of um, community uh, music activity. Now, I do have to say, kids are less um, willing to put up with ineffective instruction. So, you know, it's kind of a thing. You have to be like, well, if, if they actually hate it, it could be because it's not great. Um, but there are fabulous, fabulous music educators out there. And a lot of them are in schools. Um, and, and working really hard to bring music education in, a, in an environment that is not, not friendly to music education right now. Um, but there are a lot of devoted music educators out there. You don't have to look too hard to find one. Um, if they don't want to listen to music, that's not, I have some other questions. Um, maybe they don't want to listen to that music. Maybe they haven't yet heard music that is interesting to them, um, but also just give them time. Interests and experiences keep developing outside of childhood. On the opposite end of the spectrum from that question, here's one, and, and I, I feel this one very much as a singer myself. Um, I wanna sort of, maybe we can put our finger on the tension between you know encouraging excellence and participation, right? So Cindy asks, do you think church choirs should audition individuals for their choirs or allow anyone to participate or have more than one church choir, one that can really sing and went and read music and another filled with those who like to sing but don't have training and can't read music? As a singer, uh, she she says she, she cringes hearing choir individuals off key or not in sync. And of course, we do want to encourage participation, but, yeah. but it, 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 yeah, there's a tricky tension here. So how, yeah. how would you navigate it? For sure, that is a super tricky one. And that, frankly, that's a pastoral, like, call, you know? And, and that's that's part of what's different different about 
difficult about having musical leadership in a worship context. You have to have a pastoral sort of like some pastoral chops to be able to pull this off. So now worship, ideally, worship is the first fruits, right? We bring the, the unblemished lamb. That's what worship is. And that means that underneath that little pinnacle is a whole mountain of artistic activity. And what we do in church is the best we've got. So that's an uncomfortable thing to realize because how often is that not the case? But what that means is that you can set up that, that sort of um, goal structure in your community. Now you do have to have a good educator because just sitting in a choir rehearsal where you're practicing for a service or you're practicing for a concert and the practice is ineffective is basically going to tell people this is a kind of futile thing. So don't, don't like, we're, it's not going to be high quality. So don't, whatever, don't even put any energy into it or don't even bother. Just, just don't come. So if you have an effective educator where the things that get done in the rehearsal are effective, then you can see that you're trying to attain a goal. And there are different ways to do this. This is one suggestion. This is kind of how we do it, that rehearsals are open to anyone. And in rehearsals, people who would like to sing and worship are invited to participate. They are, they have to do exactly the same thing that the choir has to do. They have to be subject to criticism. They have to then find out whether or not there's something that they need to do on their own to improve. And then worship is actually its own sort of reward. If you have demonstrated the responsibility and you've demonstrated the dedication to working out your, you know, to, to, to showing improvement and showing that you're competent, then you are permitted to participate in worship. But anybody who wants to sing can come to learn to sing in the service. It's just that you don't necessarily get to sing in the service until you've demonstrated competence. So that's one, one solution for that. Because if you just say, no, you're not good enough, then what's, I mean, like, does that mean the gates of heaven are just going to, but I want to get better. Well, sorry, you just didn't, you just didn't have it to begin with, but I've been trying. Well, no, it's, it's, it's okay. Just, just mouth the words. (laughs) All right. This is, this has been an absolutely phenomenal, just really fun conversation. Unfortunately, we're going to have to cut it uh, cut it uh, down to an end here because uh, we're running out of time, but I want to end with one more question. It's a very important question. Uh, I'm, I know it's on a lot of people's minds in here um, because you did mention it, and this one comes from Andy um, asking, how do you learn to sing happy birthday better? Andy, I'm so sorry. Happy birthday is a terrible song. It has an octave range. It starts too high. Everybody always starts happy birthday too high. Um, Okay, so the way you learn to sing happy birthday is you start on C. Just everybody start on C. Don't start on E or F or whatever. Just get a tuning fork or get somebody who knows where C is and start low. And then when you get to the high note, don't blast it. Just try and let it float. And somebody else in the group is going to be able to pull it off. Um, No, honestly, the Star Spangled Banner and Happy Birthday are two very, very, very challenging songs for for vocalists. And we are we are definitely struggling in America to sing both of those sing both of those songs. Um, uh, Yeah, start and sing. Don't start too high. Uh, uh, Don't sing harmony. Just sing melody. It'll be okay. It'll be all right. That's a great tip. I almost want if, if before somebody breaks out with the cake, maybe hum the entire thing to yourself to make sure you're not starting too high and then surprise everybody yes. with, when they're all breaking to reach that that level. 
Well, very fun. Thank you, Talia. This has been uh, just a lovely evening uh, spending with you and our ICC family tonight. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this evening, closing out our third quarter of our curriculum year, and uh, hope to see you very soon. We'll close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody. We hope to see you very soon back at the ICC. Have a very blessed week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.